0: Amen, thank you guys for leading us this morning. If you got a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, good to see you all. As the church gathers this morning, let me, while you're flipping there, say a couple things um, about baptism and, uh, and then uh, one housekeeping note. So we celebrate baptism and I hope you, you know that nobody just like pops in the tank, um, these that have uh, gone through baptism, and we never want baptism at cross point to be something nebulous, right? Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again to give us the picture of baptism. And so baptism doesn't need to be something that's cheap or, thanks, I appreciate that, Daniel. I didn't bring any extra books this morning, but thanks for it anyway. Baptism doesn't need to be something meaningless because the way that we understand the scripture here at Cross Point we call what happened this morning believers baptism. We we do dedicate children to the Lord, but baptism in the scripture follows a profession of faith in Jesus, a declaration of repentance and believing the gospel. And so in the New Testament, we only find baptism in the lives of people after they follow Jesus, after they profess faith in Christ. That's why we call it believer's baptism. So what I loved about, uh, and, and when we baptize multiple people, you, you kind of see how God draws people, right? We, we saw, we heard from, from Alex about how God used a crazy crisis in her life, right, to make her aware of her need. But... In the Borgelt family, how God uses just faithful growing in a household about hearing the word of God, and God draws. And then what I, I, I was thankful for in John Ryder's testimony was, let's just address it this way. We live in a, a culture of decisionism, where many people have made multiple, quote, decisions for Christ. And as a result of that, we can place stock in faith in our decision for Jesus and not Jesus. Now think about that. Think about how crafty Satan is to do that. And for some of us, our repentance and faith in Jesus would be the genuine faith, the genuine repentance, would be to look back at everything religious that we've done where we were really trusting our effort and our merit and our hope that we would try to get it right this time rather than just surrendering and let Jesus do his work in our hearts. And so... I think it's a great reminder this morning as we've seen that if you're a parent, guess what? Teach your children the scriptures, pray for them, have those great spiritual conversations with them. This is a celebration of that. It's a celebration too that sometimes things happen in our life and we don't know why, but later on we'll see that it was God drawing us and calling us to himself, amen? And then guess what? Our decisions don't make us right with God, only Jesus' work on the cross does. And that's so, so freeing, so, so freeing. Um, as, and I want to remind you of this. It, I reminded uh, our small group Wednesday night, and I think it would serve our small group leaders. I know we're kind of at the tail end of the semester with small groups. But if you don't know it, what your small group leader uses to engage in the discussions in your small group, I'll remind you again, it's actually on the Crosspoint website. So every sermon that's listed or posted at Crosspoint, it usually has a listen uh, icon, a watch icon, and then it has a guide icon. And if you click that guide, You'll, a PDF will pop up and it'll actually have our review of the sermon notes that Justin and I walk through. And then it'll have the discussion questions that you're going to walk through at small group. And I think that's, that's helpful because uh, unless your small group meets on Sunday night, you guys can glance at that this afternoon. But throughout the week, it might be good the first part of the week to, to look at those discussion questions, think through them. Because you don't understand at small group what happens is when you chime in, you're obviously serving your small group leader who's facilitating the discussion. But guess what? Everybody else in your small group needs to hear how the word of God's being worked out in your life. That, that's the part of community. And let's just be honest, that's the hardest, community is the hardest part in the local church to facilitate because it requires vulnerability, it requires us honesty, it requires us sticking our neck out there. But guess what? We're going to see in the, in this morning in the text that the church is worth it. And Jesus is worth it. So I would encourage you, if you haven't gotten the practice of doing that, just glance at it. it might, you might find yourself um, in your daily Bible reading glancing at a, a couple of those questions, thinking through them, and so that at small group, you can, uh, you can chime in. Again, that's on crosspointchurch.org um, at the top. Acts chapter 14, we'll be in verses 19 through 23 this morning. We've been in chapter 14 the last few weeks. This is the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. So let's read the text and then we'll jump in. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, literally praying with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. For about two and a half years, Lauren and I lived in the city of New Orleans, and we lived uh, in uptown in the student end of of a a nice road called Palmer Avenue, and our block was the first block where two-lane students could basically park their cars without a parking permit. Now, if you've ever been a college student before, you know if you've got money, or most of the time, if you didn't have money, you're always looking for shortcuts, right? You're always looking for ways around the system, Well. What so happened is because we live two blocks from from Tulane, certain Tulane students would park their cars in front of our house and other people's houses. They would block driveways or they would just take up parking. And sometimes they would just leave them there for like five or six weeks. I did make a call to someone connected to the Mississippi Highway Patrol and Louisiana Highway Patrol to try to find out where this abandoned vehicle was, and thankfully it got moved by the end of the day. Not by a tow truck, but by the actual student driver. But, but what you got to understand is, in uptown New Orleans, parking is, is, uh, is a, a, a gift in a lot of places. So I had a neighbor that was sick and tired across the street. He was sick and tired of two-lane students and just random vehicles being parked in front of his house. So he, he went to a metal shop, and he got this jam up like no parking sign. And I'm saying it looked like the city of New Orleans churned it out. I mean, it was like green and white, had a picture of the vehicle, no parking, violators will be what I find or or whatever. So he literally puts it right in his front yard, facing the direction of traffic. It was a one-way street, and everything was great for a few weeks. I pulled in my driveway. When, uh, we were blessed to have a driveway. I pulled in my driveway and he's outside and he's pitching a fit. And he's just pitching a fit to like him and nature. Like he's just, nobody's around and he's just letting the birds and the squirrels have it. And I was like, dude, what's going on? He's like, look at this. Look at this. And I was like, what? And he's like holding something in his hand. And what had happened was a New Orleans uh, police officer had driven down our street had seen his car parked in front of his house, by the way, a sign of no parking right there, and stopped and proceeded to write him a ticket on his car in front of his house under his own sign. The ticket probably costs, you know, way more than the sign, you know? And I'm, I'm thinking through that. And while he probably deserved to do that, in essence, what he was saying was, I'm going to make rules for you, and I'm the exception to the rule. I want everybody else to act a certain way, but I don't have to act a certain way. And none of us driving down 16th Avenue have ever had the same attitude, right? Ever. None of us have imposed on other people what we ourselves expect to be exempt from. And a great question for us to ask as we go through these five verses this morning is to ask ourselves in our own life, are we willing, are we even desirous to answer the call of what the New Testament says to be a Christian? Now, let me throw out a watered-down word in our culture, because this is in the the title of the message. The the, the title of the message this morning is wholehearted commitment in Galatia. The word commitment has kind of like lost its sting. We kind of have to up the ante and use a synonym or a stronger synonym like surrender or all in or all the chips, whatever. But I didn't know what other word to use today but commitment. We we commit ourselves to Christ. We commit ourselves to Christ's mission. We we commit ourselves to Christ's people. That's in our DNA as a church that we have to remind ourselves of. We exist to glorify God by committing ourselves to God's truth, God's people, and God's mission. And I've got to ask myself, is commitment in my mind the same thing that was in the mind of Paul and Barnabas and the churches that they planted? Because most of the time, commitment in our minds, we feel that what we are committed to, check this out, those people or that group or whatever it is should feel privileged that we have given our commitment to it. Which in often ways shows that we have a higher value of ourselves than that which we are committed to. Y'all got quiet, man. And what it is, it is in a lot of ways... American individualism, American entitlement, American expectation—trying in some ways to salute biblical commands and expectation. And so, guess what? When that happens, the problem isn't the scripture; the problem's with me. And when I read this this morning, I see really clearly why Christianity expanded like wildfire in the first century, and the second century, and the third century. Because people weren't there, a part of the church, and connected to Christ and Christ's people and Christ's mission because they thought they were doing somebody a favor. It was because they were committed with their whole heart. Now, where are we? I'm up here preaching, right? So I have a laser pointer, and you're going to look at a map, okay? But which is very important in the book of Acts, here we are. So the last few weeks, they have come up from Perga. They've gone to Antioch of Pisidia. They've gone to Iconum. You remember, uh, they got run out of Iconium. This morning, we're in Lystra, and by the end of the message, we'll be in Derby, and we will make this circle back to, per- or to, to Antioch. Now, I want you to notice something. This entire area, of course, Lystra and Derby are in a, a, what we call a sub-region of Lyconia, But Lyconia is part of a bigger region, Roman province, called Galatia. And if you've heard that word before, you know the first letter that Paul wrote is a letter called Galatians. And I just want to keep this in your mind this morning. Paul wrote Galatians probably about a year after Acts 14 goes down. And guess who he's writing to in Galatia? He's writing, he says in chapter 1, verse 1, to the churches of Galatia. Who? The ones that we've been studying about Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And there's something interesting when you start putting the book of Acts with what Paul wrote and you start trying to, you start making sense of his heart, you start making sense of, of how he lived his life. But last week, Justin brought us from Iconium to Lystra, and you remember there was a great miracle there, great picture of our salvation, right? We're crippled since birth, and guess what happens? Jesus heals us, right? But you remember last week how the, the people had, were just filled with, with, with exubilation, and they were like, we're not going to miss the gods have come down before, and we're not going to miss it this time, and bulls and garland and, and all of that. Well, verse 19 tells us that in the midst of all that jubilation, Jews have come again. And they have come from Antioch and Pisidia, and they've come from Iconium, the same journey that Paul and Barnabas have made, and now there's about to be a powder keg in Lystra. That's where we're at this morning. Notice verse 19 says, Jews came from Antioch. What's about to happen is Paul is about to demonstrate his commitment to Christ and Christ's mission and Christ's church. And I I think it's very important for us to see it was suffering and persecution that allow us to see this. Oftentimes, we don't know how shallow we are until stuff hits the fan. Oftentimes, we can't even recognize our own faith and our own devotion until things are different than sunny and 72 degrees outside. And Paul and Barnabas have been faithful. They've been getting kicked out of cities And what I want us to see first this morning is wholehearted commitment to Christ. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Now this is a theme, okay? And it will continue to be a theme. The theme of what? The Jews following Paul. The Jews following coming after Paul. I just want us to go back and look at this. Go back to chapter nine, if you would. It won't be on the screen, but if you've got a copy of God's word in front of you, just go back and look in, in a few chapters in the book of Acts. Acts chapter nine. I want us to see first that the Jews not only came, but they, they kept coming. The, the Jews kept coming. If you go back to Acts chapter nine, look in verse 23. It's talking about, he's referred to as Saul of Tarsus at this point. When many days have passed, who? The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Right after Saul gets saved, would you be encouraged? You know, you've been baptized, and two weeks later, somebody's trying to kill you. There we go. Look down at verse 29. Verse 28 says that Paul was preaching boldly. What happened in verse 29? And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Remember, we've discovered Hellenists before in the book of Acts, right? The Greek-speaking Jews. That's the ones that Stephen got in trouble with, right? These people got a bone to pick, with people that preach Jesus as Messiah. But here in two instances in Acts 9, guess who's creating trouble with Paul? It's the Jews. Go to chapter 12 chapter 12. Again, this is just by means of review. But notice, again, the enmity of the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jewish people against the people of Christ. Verse 2, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. James gets killed. Guess who's happy about it? The Jews. Go to chapter 13. Chapter 13, into chapter 13. Verse 45, chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Go down to verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And then chapter 14, verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. Verse five, when an attempt was made by both Jews, or Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, Paul and Barbas heard of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. What's been happening? What's Paul's track record? Great demonstrations of God's power in saving people, right? <laughs> At the same time, great expressions of opposition and persecution. And, and I think In our life, while we should never invite persecution, why we shouldn't like in our minds think that we're like, you know, going to pick fights with the devil. Well, I'm gonna be a demon hunter. No, dude, like that's not what your goal in life is. Your goal in life is to faithfully preach the gospel and check this out. If you do, there will probably be some type of persecution or opposition that comes to you. Two truths in the life of Paul. He preached the gospel and he experienced persecution. The Jews kept coming. And specifically here it says they came from Antioch and Pisidia and they came from Iconium. It's almost like they, they had maybe a, a scout. Where's Paul and Barnabas going? All right, we're going there. They were right on their heels. Paul and Barnabas, a little in front of them, but this is the track record. We preach the gospel, we get kicked out. We preach the gospel, they're going to kill us. And so now they're in Lystra, and it's very interesting in verse 19, it says that they persuaded the crowds. Now, where have you seen this before? Where else in the Bible have you seen one minute somebody cheering and worshiping and exalting someone, and within a matter of about five days saying, crucifying? It's the same way, right? And who's leading the charge here? The Jews. Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel. They would healed people. They had been sharing the gospel. They had been saying, hey, don't worship us, worship God. And guess who shows up? The Jews do. And what do they do? In a matter of moments, they persuade this crowd to basically say, the men that we can't stop worshiping, we're going to kill them. Now, I don't know why it was. I was reading some this week. Perhaps it's like this. Perhaps in their minds... The people of Lystra thought that if Zeus and Hermes had come down in human form, then natural blessing and physical and material blessing would follow. And maybe that had not happened. Maybe the stock market hadn't gone up. Maybe they hadn't got a bump in pay. Maybe the weather got hot. And you see what's exposed here is the human heart that always wants to use God to get something as a means to an end rather than worshiping God as the end alone. And so why were they able to be persuaded? (laughs) These guys, man, we hyped them as Zeus and Hermes. They ain't nothing. They ain't gonna give us nothing. Can I just tell you this? If Jesus doesn't give you anything the rest of your life, what he's given you in his death, burial, and resurrection and your conversion is far more than any of us deserve. But the scripture says what? He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his word. He's given us his people. He's given us his spirit. Now, I know sometimes the midweek grind goes on, but it would be remindful of you to sing the old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Don't be general, be specific. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. But these Jews kept coming. And what do they do? They stone Paul and they drag him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, why Paul? Where's Barnabas? (laughs) The Barnabas be like, dude, you got this on your own. No, there's, there's probably two reasons from the text. You remember who was the chief speaker? Who do they call Hermes? They called Paul Hermes because he was the one that was, that was preaching. And if you go back and you look, Luke's very, very impl- uh, explicit to tell us in verse 9 and following that Paul was the one that God used to do the miracle on the paralyzed man. So, so Paul was the one that did the miracle, and Paul was the one that was mainly the mouthpiece. And so who do they go after? They go after Paul. Now it says here that they stoned him and then they drug him out of the city, which tells us that this was not like Stephen, even though Stephen was like mob violence, it was still like semi-ordered mob violence. Before the Sanhedrin, before the council, this guy's committed blasphemy. We want to get him out of here. They take him out of the city and they stone him. This was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So basically what the, um, what, what the, uh, the Jews were doing is they were, they were prodding and, and poking. And then what they did, they basically uh, pushed the, this mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles. Just say, man, let's just kill this dude. How are we going to kill him? (laughs) Stoning's a good way. And so probably what they began doing was, in Jewish stoning, when probably what happened to Stephen, they were taken outside the city, and in most places they were pushed off about a 10-foot ledge, and then the stoners, starting with the one who the crime was committed against, would start dropping stones. And after they had suffered for a little while, they would drop the death blow probably on the chest or the head. That's probably not what happens here. It's probably just like, pick up rocks and go at it. Now, isn't it interesting here that Paul is experiencing what he had done to other people? Now, let me just take karma ain't in the scripture, okay? It's a pagan, Eastern concept. I don't believe in karma. I believe in a good, sovereign, providential God who governs the universe to the glory of his gracious will. But in some sense, the Lord had made a promise. You can jot this down. This is in Acts chapter 15. Just jot it down. Acts chapter 15, or Acts chapter 9, I'm sorry. Acts 9, 15 and 16. Acts 9, 15 and 16. The Lord told Ananias to go and, uh, and, and meet Paul, Saul of Tarsus. But Lord, he's persecuted many of your servants. And this is what he says No, he's my chosen vessel. And then Jesus says, Jesus makes a promise, and this is the promise. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It was God's will that Paul would suffer in this way. And I think one of the gracious outworkings of Paul's suffering is that Paul began to realize how much trouble he had caused the church. And in doing so, he loved the church and was willing to give his life for the church moving forward. They stone Paul and they drag him out of the city and they suppose that he was dead. Some people have said that Paul really was dead and he was raised. Notice Luke includes the word supposed. So on the Christian side of the account, Paul was never dead. On the pagan side of the account, man, he... he, he, we, we thought he was dead. Some people have actually, you know that, that, that passage in 2 Corinthians that Paul says, I know a man in Christ that, was, that uh, was called up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Some people have said, hey, that's when he got like, he, he basically died and went to heaven, and that's what he's describing. The, the timeline doesn't work out, okay? So that, that's not what it's saying. The point was he probably got knocked unconscious. He was so beaten in stone that the crowd was happy and satisfied that he was dead. And they left him there. What do we see? Paul's commitment to Christ. I want you to see this, that Paul considered Jesus worthy of suffering and death. Paul didn't fight back. He took it. He just didn't take one stone. He took many. He didn't take one arm grabbing him. He took many. He gave him, and I'm sure at this moment, Paul might have thought it's game over. Remind you what he said over in Philippians Later on, he was writing in jail, and this is what he said. And this is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And as Paul sat there and he took stones and he was dragged out by a mob and he was knocked unconscious, we know what his theology of that was. I'm doing this because Jesus is worthy. Now that seems radical to us. There's a few more actions in this passage we'll get to that seem radical to us. I think people like me and you should not ask ourselves the first question, would we be willing to die for Jesus? I hope that we would. Hope that we would be faithful unto death. Hope that not if, but when persecution in as we see around the world comes to the American church, that we would be faithful. Because when you read church history, you know what you find? Ordinary people like you and me being faithful unto death, horrible death, painful death, terrible death. I would hope that we would be faithful, but I think the first question we should ask ourselves is, why would we be concerned about being faithful unto death for Christ when we can't even be faithful in life to Christ? Right? And in some ways, living for Jesus is harder than dying for Jesus, right? Trigger gets pulled, club gets swung, stone gets dropped. Even the ones that suffered horribly in the Colosseum, they knew by nightfall they would be in the presence of Jesus. But the grind, man, and the grind in a society in a lot of ways that we live in that is pseudo-Christian, before we complain about the pagan culture, let's complain about the pseudo-Christian culture that we've created because we don't obey Jesus. Let's examine our hearts to make sure that we're not the really frosted flakes in the room because we treat the commands of Jesus like a buffet line. We'll take what we want and we'll leave the tough stuff there for somebody else. Paul considered Christ worthy of suffering and death. But I don't want you to miss this. Look in verse 20. The crowd leaves him there. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I love this, y'all. Because there were still people there that were willing to identify themselves with a bleeding, unconscious apostle. Knowing that the crowd might come back again to get get some more and they would be the agents of rocks and mob action and mob violence. Can I just ask you this question? When the world wounds the people of God, are we running from them or are we rallying around them? Now, sometimes God's people get hurt because they make bad decisions. Sometimes God's people aren't faithful to the gospel. They're unfaithful to the gospel. And when a Christian admits they're wrong, we should seek them out. Or when they don't even admit it, the Bible says that if our brother offends us, or if our brother falls into sin, we go to them and we love them and we gently call them back to the truth. There's people in our local congregation or Christians that you may know that stumble and fall, guess what? Be the one going outside the city, surrounding them, staying with them until they come to consciousness. Sometimes, though they're not laying there unconscious because of their own actions, but the actions of other people. Had someone hug me recently because our church had ministered to them in a time of loss, And on behalf of, you know, you just thanked them? Like, why else would, like, like what else are we here for, right? <laughs> One of our own gets knocked down. One of our own is getting knocked down by world the world or loss or just crazy life circumstances. Guess what? I want to be there when they wake up. They may call me by the wrong name. They may be seeing four of me because they've been knocked silly by circumstances. But when they wake up, I want the first people they see to be the people of God. We're in it with you. We're not going anywhere. But you see, in our American of individualism, we just kind of bounce off each other like force fields. The disciples didn't know anything about that. Can I ask you this question this morning? Is Christ one part of our life, or is he our life? In America there's still a remaining sentiment that it's respectable to go to church on Sunday morning. Or at least think through certain moral values. I would tell you that being part of a local church, not just as a gathering, but as a member, it's a job. It's a responsibility. Knowing Jesus Is not something that should cause us to coast and cruise. It should cause us all the time to be before him. Lord, this life belongs to you. You are not just one subsection of my life to, to scratch my religious itch, to make me feel better about myself. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus said, take in my life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you receive my life, you don't have any part of me. Can we be done once and for all with this American pseudo religion that says Jesus can be a sticker on the backside of our life, on the back glass window of our life that makes us feel better about ourselves, and that we would just do away with that? That Christ cannot be a subsection or just a little part of my life. Christ is my life, or I do not have life. Wholehearted commitment to Christ. Let me move on quickly, secondly, to wholehearted commitment to the mission. This is crazy. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. That's good. And he entered the city. That's not good. Dude, they just tried to kill you. I don't know how long he was out for. I don't know how long he was unconscious. I don't know how, what, what's going on here? Barma said, yo, bro, what are we doing? We going back. What? Can you imagine the new believers in Lystra Hey, we we we've, we've got this place, this this like back shed that you can hide in for a couple days, and you know we'll clean you up and we'll 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 get you bandaged up, and and then we'll just kind of sneak you out. No, man, I'm going back in there today. Know what he does? Just the courage of Paul. You know, I think when David Platt wrote his best-selling book, he shouldn't have entitled it Radical. He should have called it normal. That's radical. You got an attempt on your life and they should have killed you and when you come to, you're going right back to where you came from. No, that's normal. The expectation is, this is what I signed up for. The expectation is, this is what Christ asked of me. And you see his wholehearted commitment to the mission. Why? He goes back in and then notice in verse 20, on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Thilo, put the map back up. Y'all, that's 60 miles no go-kart, no scooter, no F-150, no side-by-side. You know how you get there? You walk. The day after he was stoned with the purpose of killing him, he gets up and he leaves town. Why? Again, wisdom, right? Wisdom. There's a great missionary named John Patton. He lived on an island with cannibals in the 1800s. That's, that's crazy. Being faithful to the gospel. And the cannibals came to attack him. And what he said in his biography was, while I believe in the sovereignty of God, I am not a fatalist. And so I got out of the village. So they wake up the next morning, but they're not going to stay there because you know, stoning part two may come. So what does he do? He limps along to Derby. Why? Because he's committed to the mission. And this is what I want you to see. First, I want you to see the mission always goes on no matter what occurs. Can I just tell you this? We are not exempt from the mission of God because of our circumstances. And let me encourage you this way. Sometimes it is our circumstances that God uses to advance his kingdom in his mission. Just because we've had a bad day doesn't mean that we don't get to be salt and light the rest of the week. I'm talking to me. Why do we make so much excuses for ourselves why we shouldn't obey Jesus? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with unbelief. Acquainted with grief. Unbelief all around him. From his family. They, You ever have your family while you're healing multitudes to walk up and be like, don't listen to that guy, he's got a demon. Mark chapter three. Sold out by... One of his closest associates kicked out of his home church. What if somebody was preaching here and they said some pretty pointed words and we hauled them out and tried to stone them after service. That's what happened in Luke 4 to Jesus. Kicked out, crucified by the Gentiles, kicked out by the Jews, put out of his own family, his own brothers didn't believe him until after the resurrection. But guess what? The mission goes on. And the secret we have to remind ourselves of sometimes we experience what we experience because this is how God advances and fulfills his mission the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby Paul and Barnabas can rise up and go on a 60 mile hike the next day we can tithe We can serve in the children's ministry. We can put aside why we show up in order to ask, how can I serve God's people and serve Christ? Because, I hope you understand, Christ is not asking how much you can do for him or or how little you can do for him and keep all the rest to yourself. I don't want us to ever have a church culture where we think Jesus only asks the bare minimum out of us. There should be no reason our, our kids aren't taken care of on Sunday morning. I know we preach long. There's no reason why we should have to beg for volunteers. There's no reason why our church should ever, praise God right now, like we've had more giving than, than ever. Praise God for that. Amen? He's talking about money. Yes. Can I just kind of take my card out because we never talk about it? Can I just remind you that when you committed to be a member of Crosspoint, you said, Jesus owns my wallet too? If all of us were faithful in tithing, we could do whatever God called us to do financially. And what I see here is, I'm talking to me. I would wake up that next morning and I would make excuses for myself. Paul says, let's go. Let's go. Why? Because the mission goes on. I want you to notice also the mission is always proclaiming and discipling. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... So when they go to Derby, notice what they're doing. It's two sides of the same coin. They're preaching so people will believe, and then they're coming alongside and discipling those who believe. Never pit evangelism and discipleship against each other. They're two sides of the same coin. And some of you have maybe even used discipleship as evangelism. You got into spiritual conversations with people. And you know what? You God and used you to slowly bring them along by answering their questions and having conversations with them, and they got saved later on. You just didn't realize that you were almost discipling them into becoming a follower of Jesus. But this is what Paul and them do. They preach the gospel, and then what do they do? They teach those who believe. And this implies that they were here for more than a couple minutes. They had made many disciples. We have to watch to make sure we do not redefine the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ is not consumerism. The mission of Christ is not giving us a product. The mission of Christ is not to make us feel better about ourselves. The mission of Christ is that we may help other people discover the treasure of Jesus that we found in him. Sharing the gospel, showing people how they can know Christ. And you see, y'all, that doesn't happen only in here. Like, it's great if you invite people to be part of our worship gatherings where the Bible's taught. Like, that's great. It's great if you invite them to your small group where they can uh, meet people and, and, you know, hopefully sometimes eat some good food and hang out and all. It's great. But then there need to be times in our life where no matter where we are, we're looking to evangelize and disciple? you got to go to 8,932 baseball and soccer games at the sportsplex. Why can't you pray that God in his providence would allow you to start sitting by somebody so that over the course of a season, guess what? Start hanging with them. Gentry, you're giving golf lessons to 9,000 eight-year-olds, right? Start dropping truth bombs in their life. Think about, I know, it's, I know it's late April, teachers, and I saw a video this week of somebody just grabbing hold of a merry-go-round and being like drugged through the mud and that describes where you're at right now in the, in the school calendar. Yeah, Right? Get an amen from that? Yeah. Just be mindful, even to the end of the school year, that, that God has providentially put people in your classes so that you can demonstrate who Jesus is. Because most of you spend more time with them than their families, and certainly more than if they're involved in a church. Question Is Christ's mission a lifestyle or a hobby? Is his mission a lifestyle? Or a hobby let me get to this last point at least some of it Paul showed wholehearted commitment to the church and they had preached the gospel to that city and they had made many disciples they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. One word I want you to underline in verse 21. They returned. Thilo, map, please. They're in Derby. Now, where was the church that sent them out? Antioch of Syria, right? Look how much closer they are now to Antioch. All they had to do, there was a, there was a pass in the, the Tarsus Mountains right here called the Sicilian Gates. About 150 miles they could get to Tarsus. That's Saul's hometown. That's where he can really get like Band-Aids and ointment and all that, right? And from Tarsus, man, it's a quick trip to Antioch, Right? Paul says, we can't do it. We can't do it. Because what about these believers in Lystra that watch me get stoned and rallied around me and pick me up when I was unconscious and help me? What, what about in Iconium where the, 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 the city was split between us and the Jews and Gentiles? What about the first place we went to, Antioch and Pisidia? That we got run out of where people begged us to preach the gospel. And what about perga, where we never even were able to share because of sickness? We can't take the easy route. We gotta go back. We gotta go back. See what Paul's doing? The church matters more to me than me. The church matters more to me than my comfort. The church matters more to me than my vacation. The church matters more to me than my well-deserved rest. The church matters more. And that's what we see here. He was committed to the church. How? Let me just mention these quickly. They returned rather than taking the easy route. You just saw it on the map. He was not asking What is the easiest way for me? He was asking, what is the best interest for the church? Not what's most convenient for me, but what and how are God's people going to be impacted? So what do they do? They return to do what? In verse 22, strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So what do they do here? They strengthen the disciples and they encourage them to persevere continue in the faith, keep going. How did they do that? They went back and they spent time among them. They taught them the scriptures. They exhorted them. Literally, this is really cool, the word there for encourage is the same word we get paraclete, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Somebody that calls, is is called along, someone to stand side by side, to walk with them, to exhort them, to encourage them, to help be there for them to lean on. Basically, I'm, I'm in it with you. And Paul says, Barnabas, we, we, can't, we can't leave these churches. we got to go back, even if it's a, <laughs> the long way. And you know, what were they doing? They were going back to the same cities where their lives had been threatened, they had almost been killed, and there were people probably waiting on them. How were they encouraging them? End of verse 22. Saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say that I must, he said we must. This is where I get stuck in the throat again. Do I exemplify in my own personal life what I preach? Because that's what Paul did. It's one thing to say, hey man, you got to, you know, through many tribulations, you got to enter the kingdom of God. You know what he would write later to these same churches in Galatians? Don't, don't let anybody bother me anymore because in my body I bear the scars, the marks of the Lord Jesus. And you know what he's probably referring to? He's probably referring to the, the beating and the stoning he got hit with at Lystra. Later on when he wrote to Timothy, he says, You saw, you know, you know what happened to me. You saw what happened to me at Iconium in Lystra. You know. So what did Paul do here? He told the disciples, he taught them the word, and he didn't hold back the difficult things. Check this out. As a church, we want to believe in such a way that what we read in the Bible makes us uncomfortable. We don't ever want to have a a, a church where every single message makes us feel awesome about ourselves as we leave. If that ever happens, you have permission to rebuke us. Did you hear me? If all I ever talk about is your benefit and your success and your happiness, I'm not teaching the whole counsel of the word. You know what we should want? We should want it when we go home after we eat lunch, we have to pray for a minute because man, there's some repair we gotta do. In the natural course of the church, you should hear sermons about hell. You should hear sermons about judgment. You should hear sermons about joy. You should hear sermons about money. You should hear sermons about leadership and responsibility and grace and wrath. You know why? Because it's all right here. That's what they did. And I think it's important to see when you teach the whole council, guess what happens? No matter if it hurts them a little bit, the disciples are encouraged and the disciples are strengthened. see one more thing they did. They appointed leaders. We'll revisit this in the future because verse 23, there's so much here. But notice it says, they appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The word here, elder, is speaking of somebody in maturity, spiritual maturity. There's two other words in the New Testament that are used to kind of describe local church leadership. One's called an an overseer. One's called an elder. Another one's called a shepherd, literally from from the Latin pastor. they, They described the different ways to look at this leadership. That God wanted people to lead the church. God wanted men to lead the church that were spiritually mature. God wanted people to lead the church that in the right way could exercise spiritual authority, but to care for and protect and feed the flock. That's the idea here. And so Paul and Barnabas prayerfully, because it says that they did that, they appoint these leaders. And then notice they commit them to the Lord because guess what? They eventually have to move on. And so these unsung, unnamed church leaders are left with the daunting task of governing, overseeing, serving, protecting, caring, feeding, serving the people of God. Is there struggles? Oh, you better believe it because the book of Galatians comes in about a year later from this. The Jews had tried to kill Paul and they realized they couldn't kill Paul. They tried to kill his theology. That's why you have the book of Galatians. But you know what? The church went on. Here's where I want to sum up. So think about Paul's life, I think about Paul's commitment, and I think about the, 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 the fact that Barnabas or Paul can either be swayed in disloyalty to Christ, you couldn't take their loyalty away, you couldn't pay them off, you couldn't threaten them enough. Christ deserves more than just our Sundays. Christ deserves more than our bare minimum. You say, Luke, well, up the ante. Tell me what I need to do. Make a blank check with your life. Jesus, whatever it takes to advance your mission in Jones County and Laurel, I'm willing to do it. Jesus, whatever it takes in my little life every day to demonstrate the fact that you are alive and you are Lord, do it. Jesus, whatever it takes for me to serve my church more, let me do it. Jesus, whatever it takes for me to serve my community more, do it. I just believe an attitude of prayer like that with suggestions every now and then, we can get some traction in our own lives and our small groups and as a church to say, We don't have to invent all these like 5,000 different programs. Staying in the word, abiding with him, and being led by the spirit, I believe the church can become missional. Because don't you want to be a part of something that matters? Don't you want to be a part of something that impacts the way things are 10 billion years from now and the only thing in the world that you can be a part of? that ultimately matters and ultimately changes eternity is the church of the living God. I'm preaching to myself this morning. Lord, we need your help. You didn't call us to be apostles. There are no more. God, you've called us to be faithful in our town, in our city, and in our life. God, sometimes just wish you would show us me how little I measure up to the New Testament standard. God, how I'm so much more American than Christian. How our lives can be so concerned with popularity and not purity. The opinion of men rather than the the thoughts and smile of God. God, I want to be part of a church that doesn't look for the bare minimum that we can give you, God. but that with our whole heart. We love you, your people. And we commit ourselves to your mission. God, it takes maturity to do that. It takes years for us to be formed into that. But God, I know it can start in our hearts. And God, I thank you for what you've been doing. God, thank you for new life today. Thank you for the celebration of baptism. God, thank you for how you're working in our church to love the Word. God, how you move in our our congregation to help people and serve people and love people. God, I I thank you for that. Celebrate that. God, please don't let us just stagnate or just be comfortable with what you've done in the past. God, we want to see more people saved. We want to see more people strengthened and encouraged. God, I was praying this week and last week. Lord, some of these students that we pour into and some of these college students and some of these children, God, Lord, would you call them out to be missionaries one day? It may may make us feel uncomfortable. We may have plans for our kids and plans for our students. God, spend us for your mission. God, even our, our families and our adults in this place, God, if you would send them out to other places. I guess, Lord, I'm praying this morning in my own life. Help me to be Christian in New Testament, Lord. Church, this morning, how has the Spirit spoken to you from the Scriptures? How has He applied the Word of God to your heart? How has He prodded you and encouraged you and convicted you? Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. We as pastors will be at the back of the room in just a few minutes. We'll be available after the service as well. If you need to talk to somebody or need counseling or need to talk about an issue in your life, we're here for you. We'll be at the back. We'll be there as pastors and we have other believers that would be more than willing to talk to you today and pray for you and encourage you. But maybe you just need to sit before the Lord or stand before the Lord and pray. Say, God, with my whole heart, with my whole heart. Help me to be all in to whatever you say. God honors that. God blesses that. So let's stand and let's sing this back to the Lord as Daniel and the team lead us. If you need to pray, if you need to talk to one of us, we're here for you as well. Daniel, come lead us, brother.